Don't forget, uh, by the way, uh, we have to do something with our clocks tonight. What do we do with our clocks? Fall back. Spring forward. Run forward. All right. Good. Yeah. Turn your clocks ahead an hour, right? Is that what we do? Okay. Good. I want to talk to you a little bit uh, tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is uh, Paul's definitive statement of the resurrection and the great hope that we have also because Christ is raised. And it's a, really an inexhaustible passage. And I want to talk to you just from a few verses from verse 7 through 10. And I want to talk to you about resurrection power. Resurrection power, especially in the face of uh, impossible circumstances. Lost causes, so to speak. Anybody ever face a lost cause? A hopeless situation? Just a few of you. Okay. The rest of you have something in store for you. All of us, at some point, uh, will have, if we haven't already, face really uh, situations that we will say they're impossible. They're lost causes. There is no hope. And uh, the temptation will be strong to give up if we haven't already given up on that situation. Many of us have faced medical dilemmas members of our family. The doctor has told us that the person in our family, the situation is incurable. Sometimes we have visibility of uh, a teacher-student situation where the teacher says the the student is unteachable. Um, We've seen situations where people in relationships, uh, a A person who does marriage counseling will say this relationship is irreconcilable. Those are very real issues, aren't they, in life? I can think in my own life of a a number of events uh, just with respect to uh, marriage counseling and all the marriage counseling I've done over the years. There have been only two hopeless cases. In the 15 years I've been doing this, there's been only two hopeless cases. Can you imagine? Only two. And both of these couples, I told them to go get a divorce. If I hadn't told them that, I thought for sure they would murder each other. It was that bad. I mean, I, I, just, I just held no hope for these two couples. And both couples eventually drifted away. I don't, lost track of them. I don't know what happened to them except that uh, a couple of years later, one couple notified me they'd moved someplace into the Midwest and Indiana or someplace, and uh, I got a letter from them. And they, they just said, we wanted, you, we wanted to write to you and let you know that we're doing really well. Our marriage is flourishing. In fact, we have two more kids. I thought, that's a miracle. The other couple... Were these, the other couple, they were much worse. They were physically, verbally abusive to each other. They would, in a counseling session, beat on each other. I'd have them stand up in my office screaming and yelling and kicking 
And it, I'd have to literally get up and, 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 and physically separate them. And I told them, I said, I've never told anybody this before. You guys get a divorce. Get away from each other. That's not my normal counsel. But this situation was so utterly hopeless. And again, I was surprised. About five years later, I saw the wife. I was at Builders Emporium. And I was dressed in, you know, I was doing yard duty. And I had a bag of manure in my arms. (laughs) And this woman comes running up to me. She says, Pastor Zach, Pastor Zach, do you remember me? And I just, I could never, ever forget that voice. (laughs) And I turned and I said, yes, I remember you. And I I was marveling that she was still alive. Seriously. Her husband was a drunkard, abusive, uh, foul mouth. She could give it out just as badly as he could. I mean, I'm painting to you, this was a desperate picture. And so I said to her, I said, well, how are you? I'm holding this bag of manure. I said, how are you? She says, we're wonderful. I said, we're wonderful? Who's we? And she went on to tell me that she and her husband, they, they, they finally did what I told them to do. And they reconciled. He quit drinking. Their, their marriage was wonderful. He died uh, the next year, but they had about three to five years of of really wonderful relationship. I I was utterly, utterly shocked. In my wildest imaginings, I would never, ever, ever believe that those two people could possibly reconcile. You know, in the face of hopeless situations, there is hope. There is hope. We don't always see it. We don't always realize it. But in retrospect, we can say that, can't we? I want to suggest to you that even in situations that seem so predictably finished, there is hope. Even when we close the book, even when we say it's over, God is still working. That's the marvel. That's the, the wonder of worshiping a living God who never gives up on his creation. We give up. Aren't you glad that he doesn't give up? You see, we have a, we have a tremendous model of this. The, the, this, is, this is evidenced by an event, a situation early in the first century. There was a 33-year-old 33 religious leader. He was dead. He'd undergone a public execution, and there were many, many witnesses. His body was disposed of, according to the customs of the day, by the authorities, the proper authorities. All that was required now was to make sure that grave robbers did not disturb this final resting place of 
this person who had become a political nightmare in that situation. So there was a guard posted at his tomb, at his burial site. And it seemed as though the fate of the Christian cause was sealed. It seemed like it was over. The disciples were off in hiding. They were fearful. Their leader, their master, was dead and buried. All their hopes were dashed. Dead messiahs don't leave much of an inheritance, do they? Not at all. But then, something unexpected happened. Totally unexpected. Three days later, unexplainable events began to occur. Rumors began to fly. Rumors began to spread throughout the city that the grave was empty. A growing number of people claimed to have seen this man who had been executed between two thieves. They were saying, he's alive. We saw him. This dead issue, if you will, was not only alive, but he had now become an irrepressible source of everlasting life. He became the leader of what turned out to be an irrepressible cause, Christianity. You cannot stop Christianity. Jesus said before he died, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And we've seen Christianity grow and grow and expand, and it continues to expand around the globe. And there's a major, major push into those unreached people groups, into those dark areas where, where Christ's name is not mentioned. But there are people who are going, and the Holy Spirit is opening up doors. Irrepressible. In 1 Corinthians 15, as we look at verses 7 through 10, we see that the power of the resurrection represents hope for other lost causes, for other dead issues. Is there a lost cause in your life? Is there a dead issue in your life? Have you given up on something? Do you feel hopeless? There's resurrection power available. From Paul's own testimony that we'll read in these few verses, we'll see that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is life-changing, it's energizing, and it is available to anyone who's willing to be changed by it. This power is real, and it is available. Paul's own testimony. Read with me these few verses, beginning at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Then he, meaning Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Can you imagine what Paul was feeling? Can you imagine he had to carry that with him, his persecution of the church? even now as a Christian. 
He goes on and he says, By the grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now with that, I want to suggest to you, first of all, that that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, that that power is life-changing. Let me say that again. It's life-changing. God changes people. He changes them. So many of us are a testimony. We, 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 we look at our life, who we were, what we were before Christ. We look at our life now, and we, we have to come to the obvious conclusion we're different. We've been changed. Is it that we've changed ourselves? No. God has changed us. And he's changed us by his power. This power of the resurrection to change lives is seen in its ability to change the most unlikely people. How many of us know people that we would say, that person would never become a Christian? It's impossible. And we shy away We shy away from telling them the gospel. We shy away from witnessing them because what? In our mind, they'd never become a Christian. They're the most unlikely person. Do you think that Paul was, to those early Christians, the most unlikely person to become a Christian? Oh, absolutely. Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul the Apostle, though he was, remember, a very religious man, wasn't he? Absolutely. Pious, righteous Jew committed to stamping out this heretical sect, these people who call themselves, or at this point they hadn't called themselves Christians, but followers of Jesus, utterly committed. I suggest to you that to those early Christians, he was probably the last person in the world you would ever expect to join the church. No way. I mean, just if you look at his record, You read the Bible, you read the book of Acts. While Peter and James and John and the the others were, were doing everything they could to tell the world that Christ had risen from the dead, what was Saul doing? He was doing everything he could to shut them up. Absolutely. If you just read the book of Acts in the early chapters, that before he was converted, Paul was one of the darkest most sinister forces in the early days of the church. He hated Christians with a passion. You know anybody that hates Christians with a passion? Just despises them and looks for opportunities to to persecute, to put down, to ridicule publicly. There are lots of people who hate Christians with a passion. That was Paul's situation. He not only hated them with a passion, he hunted them down. In fact, in in the book of Acts in chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus with authority to hunt down Christians in that city. He hurt them. He not only hunted them down, but he subjected them to arrest, to imprisonment, and some even to death. For the things that they were saying... To Paul, 
not only were they heretical, they were blasphemous. They were subject to death. Remember, all these people are Jews. And he wants to stamp this out. You see his own testimony in verse 9. When he says, I persecuted the church of God. Boy, those words just resound. I I can't even imagine what it was like for him to even say that. I persecuted the church of God. The church that he so loved and so was willing to die for. I persecuted the church of God. I remember before I became a Christian, uh, I laughed and mocked about God and about what he would do in this church. And now God's great sense of humor has me pastoring this church. It's amazing. Let me read to you also Paul's words from 1 Timothy, which really kind of expand on what he says in verse 9 of Corinthians there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Can you you listen to what he's saying? He says, I was a violent persecutor and yet the Lord was merciful to me and poured out on me his love. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save the righteous save sinners. And he goes on to say, of whom I am the worst. Paul designates himself the worst sinner. And I think, again, he's remembering how he had persecuted the church. He says, I'm the worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy. Now this is wonderful. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive, receive eternal life. So he's saying, look, I'm, if I was the worst and Christ had mercy on me, what about the rest? Surely no one is as bad as Paul. That's what he's saying. I was the worst. No one is as bad as as Paul. Paul's experience, beloved, should give us great hope. It should give us great confidence that no one is too bad to be changed by the Lord. No one is too arrogant. No one is too alcoholic. No one is too immoral. No one is too spiritually antagonistic to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. What about you? As you look at your life, you think, I, I, there's, I, I'm just, I'm too old to change. Or, too much has happened. I've, I've done too much. I'm, I've been so bad. 
I remember several years ago in, in the, the class I taught called Roots. Some of you have taken that class. We were talking about how God changes people and how God's grace, He extends His grace. He says, no matter how great your sin was, my grace is greater. And a, a young woman was sitting in my class and she heard those words and I know that God just spoke to her heart. She began to quietly weep. And I knew that God was doing something. And so after the class, I could hardly wait to get to her and, and ask her what was going on. How I, I noticed her weeping and was she okay? And she began to tell me that it, it was beyond belief that God could forgive her for all that she had done. She had had several abortions. She had lived as a prostitute. She was a drug addict. I mean, you, this, this poor girl's life was an utter mess. And it was almost as if coming to church was her very, very, very last hope before she would kill herself. She was desperate. And I just told her, I said, God brought you here. God brought you here. He set you right there. He wanted you to hear that though your sin has been great, His grace is greater. No one is beyond His capacity to change. It was wonderful. We were both crying. Got a I got to lead her to Jesus. And she left here with a, with a song in her heart, and she attended our church for several years thereafter before she got married and moved away. It's wonderful to watch her blossom in our congregation. But you see, there's no one is too sinful. No one is too bad. No one is outside of the pale of God's ability to change them. He's in the business of changing lives. I'm so happy that he is. Is there somebody in your life that you look at and you think, that person will never change? It's impossible for that person to change. They are so dead set. You don't know. You don't know what God has for them. You don't know that you're in their life for a reason. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Are they any less likely than Paul, the worst of sinners, to be changed? Was Paul radically changed, radically transformed? When word began to spread that he'd become a Christian, even the Christians didn't believe it. Not Saul. No way. And he had to have a special introduction, didn't he? Yes. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Jeremiah says, Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Beloved, where, where there's an error in your life, you're in a roadblock, you can't change, and you can't change the situation where you see no hope and you give up, remember one thing, nothing is too hard for God. He can change that situation. He can change that thing in you that needs to be changed. It's His 
power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's that same power that changed Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. That same power that can work in you and change you. He can change anybody. 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 He is the sovereign God. Hallelujah. Somebody say hallelujah besides me. Not only is his resurrection power life changing, but it is also energizing. Energizing. We know the Greek word for power most often used in the New Testament is the same word we get the word dynamite from. It's a very picturesque word. The word is dunamis. It's dynamite kind of power. It's power that, that, that is energizing. Not only can change your life, but can energize you. You may be changed, but you may also need the power to live, the power to love, and the power to work as unto the Lord. I mean, life can kind of drag, can't it? We can kind of get discouraged over things, relationships, and uh, we can fall out of love in our relationships. Anybody, anybody ever experienced that? You look around, you wonder, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right decision here? It's kind of hard to love people in your own strength, isn't it? Life is hard, isn't it? Throws all sorts of um, obstacles are in our way. You get up in the morning and sometimes, you know, your frame of reference is rather than hallelujah, Lord, oh, another day. I mean, life can beat on you. Life can get you down. Life can be discouraging. It's hard. It's hard to live life. It's hard to love, really. It's hard to to do your work as unto the Lord. We need power available to us so that we can live, so that we can love, and we can work as unto Him. Our lives are to what? To bring Him glory, are they not? To bring Him glory. Lord, Lord, I want my life to glorify You. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, Why can't I do the thing I want to do? What's he want to do? He's, he wants his life to glorify the Father, doesn't he? But he can't seem to do it. He's stuck. He needs God's power to overcome his stuckness, if you will. And we do also. And God's power, beloved, is energizing for us. If you look back again at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, that passage makes it clear that Paul was talking more about just some big idea that was motivating him to change. Sometimes we go, oh, I've got an idea. And that's, that's an impetus for us to make some changes. He's talking more uh, about something more than that. Did Paul change himself? Did he change himself from being the chief persecutor to the chief promoter of the church? Did he just one day say, ah, I'm not going to persecute the church anymore. I think I'll be an advocate for the church. Was that his, was that his idea? No. No, absolutely not. Had he put out more effort than the other apostles before him? Just in his own strength? What does he say in verse 10? Look at it with me again. 
He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by God's grace that I'm not what I was, but I am what I am. God has changed me. He goes on and he says, His grace to me was not without effect. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but what? The grace of God that was with me. What enabled Paul to work harder than all the rest? What enabled Paul to persevere? What enabled Paul to be left for dead outside the city of Lystra, thrown on the garbage heap, beat up so badly he's left for dead? What allowed Paul, what enabled Paul to get up off of that garbage heap when his friends came and found him and revived him? What what enabled him to go back into Lystra to preach the gospel again? If that were me, I would say, let's get out of here. They don't want to hear. He said, we're going back in the city. What enabled him to do that, beloved? I would suggest to you that it is the Holy Spirit of God who works in us to make it possible for us to work hard in doing what he wants done. Let me say that again. It's the Holy Spirit of God who works in us to make it possible for us to work hard in doing what He wants done. This is important. Do we ask for God's power to do what we want to do? Yes, we do, absolutely. Do we have a tendency to put our kingdoms and our will and our desires first? And we say, God, help me, strengthen me so that I can. And then we have our list, our, our laundry list, our agenda. But the real issue for Paul, Paul wanted to do what, what God wanted done. Paul was, going to, was willing to pour his life out to work hard for what God wanted done. And that's where the power comes. Beloved, Paul wasn't experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection uh, merely to make a name for himself or to make a lot of money or to amass uh, his his own kingdom, if you will. On the contrary, he experienced this spiritual enabling, this spiritual empowering in the course of what God wanted him to do. What does God want you to do? What does God want you to do? Let me tell you what he wants you to do. Real simple. He wants you to live for him. He wants you to love for him. And he wants you to work hard for him. In your family, in your relationships, whatever job he's given you to do, he wants you to what? He wants you to be faithful with whatever he has put into your hands for his glory. And he has said, look, I'll strengthen you. I'll enable you to do everything I've called you to do according to my strength, my power. Barry, are you a fireman as unto the Lord? You do your fireman work as unto him, right? And you know his strength in your life. God enables us in whatever station we find ourselves planted, as if we commend and commit ourselves and our work as unto him, we can expect his resurrection power enabling us to do what he's called us to do. 
You say, well, I, I don't have a real calling. I'm, I'm, I just, I'm just a mom. I stayed home with the kids. Oh, what a wonderful calling. What a wonderful calling to pour all of your energy and all the things that God has given you into those little lives and to raise up another generation of the church. Oh, don't belittle that calling to be a mother and to have the joy and the privilege of staying at home and raising children. Oh, my. That's God's call on your life. That's God's joy. Beloved, let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 36 real quickly. Mark these verses down. Look them up later. Ezekiel 36, 27. God says to his people, he says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How can we keep his decrees? How can we follow his laws? How can we do his will? Only by what? His spirit and his power. Do you remember on the, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Listen to what the Lord says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's talking to that little band of believers. My Spirit will empower you, will enable you to do my will. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Familiar verses, but again, the same idea. He says, therefore, my dear friends, he's writing to this band of believers in the city called Philippi. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Note this. He says, continue. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, you've been obedient. You've been, you've been serving. You've been faithful. Continue to work out your salvation. In other words, continue to do the things that God has called you to do that you've been doing all along. And then in the next verse, he says, remember, it is God who is at work in you. How's God at work in us? By His Spirit. It's God who's at work in us enabling us, empowering us to not only will, but to do His good pleasure. It's God who does it. That resurrection power is not only life-changing, but it's energizing. He gives us His Holy Spirit so that we can actually do the things He calls us to do. We can live richly. We can love deeply. And we can work wonderfully as unto Him. And thirdly, this resurrection power is available. It is available to anybody, to anybody who wants to be changed and wants to be empowered to live their life for His glory. It is available. Note in verse 10, this power is called what? What's it called? Grace. It's called grace, isn't it? Grace isn't just the name of a woman. It's a word that is used to describe 
the work and the power of the Spirit of God in a person's life. The word grace describes the work of God in someone's life. And that's the very word that Paul uses. Why does he use that word grace? Why doesn't he just say power? Why doesn't he just say the Spirit of God working in someone's life, working in his life? Why does he focus on this word grace? Well, I think if you understand the meaning of the word grace, we'll see why. In a general sense, the word grace undeserved expression of kindness. True? And if you earn something and you get it, are you getting it because someone's being gracious to you? No, grace is an undeserved expression of kindness. Someone is kind to you because you don't deserve it. That's grace. Isn't that nice that people are nice to us because we don't deserve it? They're kind to us? Yes. So therefore, grace, then, would be any expression, any expression of the kindness of God that is given to those who do not deserve it. Any expression of the kindness of God given to those who do not deserve it. That involves not only the initial stage of grace of salvation, but every other undeserved help we ever receive from the Lord. Does God owe us anything? He doesn't. He doesn't owe us anything. It's because he is kind and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's compassionate. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that he has had mercy on me. Are you glad he's had mercy on you? Amen. Absolutely. Well, don't let that point escape you. See, this is what makes the kind of life-changing, energizing power that Paul experienced available to us as well. It's this whole idea, the fact that we don't deserve it is what qualifies us for it. The minute we start saying, you owe me, you owe me, you've just disqualified yourself. The minute you remember, you don't deserve it, God doesn't owe it to you. That's when you're qualified most for His grace. It's on this unmerited basis that all of us can come to the Lord to receive the help that he loves to give. How many parents do we have here? Parents, do you love to help your kids? Do you love to help them? I mean, is it is one of the joys of your heart to bless your kids, to give to them, to take care of them, provide for them when they're... Sure. And, and you, know the, you know what you derive. You know how, how wonderful it is to be able to bless them. How much more than, if we understand that, does God derive pleasure from giving to us, from helping us? He loves to forgive us. He loves to transform us. He loves to energize us. And, beloved, no one has any inherent right to claim any of that. It's just that he is gracious. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, talks about the throne of terror, right? That we can approach the throne of terror. Ah, throne of grace. That's right. Thank you for correcting me. I knew I should have been speaking from up here. The throne of grace. 
We can obtain, we can approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness. Confidence, with boldness, and we can obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. God's kindness, God's help in our time of need. Do we want to become active and obedient children of God, faithful servants? Is that our desire of our heart? God, I want to be a faithful servant. I want to be an active and obedient child. Sure, absolutely. Do we want to live and to work and to love in a manner that blesses Him? Absolutely. We can only do so, Paul tells us, by the grace of God. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it with our own resources, beloved. And we receive this grace the same way and from the same source that Paul received it. Did Paul receive this grace, this life-changing, this empowering grace? Did he receive it by going through some rituals? Initiation rites? Huh? You sure? Ah, did you read the book of Acts? Did he receive it because he spent hours on his knees in prayer and read the Bible unceasingly, so therefore he earned? Are you sure? Did he receive this grace because his mom and dad could get it for him? How about his pastor? His pastor could arrange it, he could get it, right? How did Paul, beloved, receive this grace? How did he receive this grace that so changed him and empowered his life? By faith. By faith. There is no other way. You say, by faith, that's it? You have to do stuff? You have to do something? No. What do you do? You believe. You believe. He believed. He believed in Jesus, the risen Lord who confronted him. He could have shined him on. He could have ignored him. But he chose to what? He chose to believe. He had three days to consider all of his categories, didn't he? He was blind for three days after Jesus appeared to him. He believed. He said, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died. I believe that he was buried. I believe that he arose. I believe that he is alive. And I believe that I can do all things because he has promised to strengthen me. I believe. Therefore, I will not lean on my own understanding anymore. I will acknowledge him in all of my ways. And he'll make my path straight. I believe. Oh, we can get into those situations that are difficult and we can rummage around and try to change them and make the changes and we can do all the machinations that change our life and nothing happens. We're only more miserable. You say, does that mean we just stand back and do nothing? No, you stand back and believe. You work on in those areas you can work on and you wait in those areas you can do nothing about. But you believe. You never, ever give up hope. You say, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that I worship a God of the impossible, a God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that didn't previously exist. That's the God that I worship. I believe. 
Do you think those things characterize Paul's life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And beloved, I want to suggest to you that that same resurrection power that changed his life, that energized his life, is available to you and to me. The question is, will we receive it? Will we believe it? Will we avail ourselves of God's grace in our life? Will we believe in this resurrection, this God that we say we worship? If we will, then we will know that power. We will experience life-changing things. We will have power in our life to live for His glory. To love the unlovely. To love those people in our life who just we cannot get past. God will put His love into our heart for those people. He will allow us to live our life for His glory. We will have a new dynamic to our life, but it's His grace. And it's available. And you can't do anything to get it. You can't earn it. You can't get heavenly brownie points and turn them in at the end of the week. It's by faith. I believe. I believe. I believe. you'll find that doing the will of God will never, ever again be a hopeless cause to you. It is possible to the degree that you are open to the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. Trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus. And you'll begin to experience for yourself the wonders of his own resurrection power. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, I just do thank you for the fact that you're alive. The fact that you, your purpose is to come into our lives to save us, to redeem us, to change us, to give us a hope. And to give us a life that, Lord, will be abundant. But it's all to your glory, Lord. It's not to our glory. It's that the glory of our lives would be reflected back to you and all we can do is praise you and thank you continuously. I thank you tonight and I worship you. You are a great God. You are a mighty Savior. I bless your holy name. You know, keep your heads bowed for just one more moment. There are, probably might be some of you here tonight that you're at a, a point of decision in your life where... Quite frankly, you want to change. You're sick and tired of the status quo, the same old, same old. And you've heard some things tonight that, that God has, has made alive to you. I've just been the messenger, but he's taken those words and he's caused them to come home inside your heart. And you're sitting there thinking, I'd like a changed life. I need power in my life. There are some things in my life that I, I just cannot overcome in my own strength. And just maybe that same power is available to me. If you're thinking those things, I'd like to pray with you. A real simple prayer. Some of you may have never, ever asked Jesus into your life. 
I want to pray for you and pray with you that you would do that. Some others of you may have already asked Christ into your life, but again, you're, you're, you're discouraged and you're just kind of slowed down in your Christian life. And you need power. I'd like also to pray with you. But I, I'm not going to pray unless I know that there's, there's in fact some people who want to pray. and We'll do so in a moment, but I need you to let me know. So while everybody's heads are bowed and people, are, Christians are praying, and if you, if you want to know this resurrection power in your life, and you're serious, then just signal me. Lift your hand real high. I see it. We'll pray in just a couple minutes. Okay, God bless you. All right. Anybody else? God bless you. Okay. I see those two hands in the back. These hands over here. Okay, good. God bless you. I see your hands. Okay, I see this hand down here in front. Over there on the side. Okay, down here in front. Anybody else? Okay, I see your hand way over there. Okay, let's pray. Make this your prayer. You, God, the Bible says God looks on your heart. It's not the eloquence of your words or my words. It's what your heart is saying to him. God, forgive me. I am a sinner. I confess to you freely I've broken your laws. I'm guilty before you. And I have tried to be master of my own life, and I realize that I can't do that. I've heard tonight that you would save me, you'd change me. So I, I confess to you that, that I need changing. I understand that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, but death couldn't hold him down. He rose from the dead. The whole point was to bring us life, to show that he was Lord even over death. So God, I pray right now, and I ask Jesus to save me. I ask Jesus to come into my life. I get off the throne of my life, and I ask him to sit on that throne. Jesus, you be Lord. You direct me. You give me wisdom. You help me. You empower me, please. Forgive me for the ways and the times I've repudiated you. Forgive me for my sins and all the foolishness of my life. Tonight, I confess, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And I commit my life to him. Empower me now, Lord Jesus, that I might serve you faithfully all the rest of the days of my life. I give you thanks, and I praise you, and I worship you. Amen. Well, welcome to the family, those of you that prayed with me. God bless you. A couple things real quickly. If you prayed with me, and especially if you prayed to receive Christ for the very first time in your life, then we have uh, a little little package for you, if you will. Uh, just as we close the service, Pastor Kurt Dolan is in the back here, and he'd love to give you this little package. So t- just take a little stop over there, and he'll hand it to you. There's some things in there that are uh, be very, very helpful to you. Also, if you did pray with me for the first time, uh, or if you are a Christian and you prayed again for empowerment, but you have not yet been baptized, we invite both of you to come and be baptized tomorrow night and make your public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ and your brand new life. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand. Let's sing his praises one more time before we dismiss.
Is he praised? Amen. Yes, many years ago, George Frederick Handel wrote the famous chorale, the Hallelujah Chorus, and um, it's been a tradition that people would stand when we sing this. So let's sing the Hallelujah Chorus together. you in Jesus' name and by His Spirit, that you may know this grace and this power that